Good morning, everyone. I'd like to start off with a quick announcement. This morning after the plenary session, we're going to have a special convocation that's going to be held right here. And in that convocation, Marcus Winchester, who's the Director of Language and Culture for the Pokagon Band of the Potawatomi, will be the guest speaker. He's going to talk, among other things, about the, the ways in which that Pokagon Band, one branch of the people who are native to, to this land that Goshen is now on, are growing and rerouting. After that convocation, there's going to be a, a special reception. You'll have a chance to, to speak with him and have refreshments in the Yost room right next door. And now I would like to introduce Richard Aguirre, who has assembled a, uh, a great team of presenters to speak on the subject of, of local politics and political engagement. Many of you know Richard as a member of the teaching team with ICC, but I'd like to mention a few things about him that, that you might not know. He worked for years as a newspaper reporter and editor uh, covering government and politics and education and more. Most recently, when he was a journalist, he was a senior editor at the Salem Statesman Journal in Oregon. When he came here to Goshen College in 2007, he arrived as director of public relations for the college and served in that position for a number of years. Uh, he currently is the community impact coordinator for Goshen College. A year ago, he was awarded the Indiana Latino Spirit Community Service Award from the Indiana Latino Expo, and that was for his service to immigrants in the Latino community around the state of Indiana. He is on so many boards and committees and task forces and other groups and has made more trips to Indianapolis uh, to the State House than anyone else here at Goshen College. Please help me welcome Richard Aguirre. Well, good morning. Because they insist on it, I need to start with a shout out to Section 6, Super Sixers, and Jody Saylor, back there. <clears throat> I'm happy to present on two serious topics that are close to my heart, politics and local involvement. And I hope you'll leave this plenary with a better understanding of why it's important to engage in politics, and mostly through uh, the experiences of our four speakers today. And I also hope you'll ignore these funny but cynical definitions for politics and local people. Some students, the students will speak in a few minutes, um, have a strong interest in advocacy, have a strong interest in shaping our world, and we'll also have the opportunity to hear from Goshen College, Goshen's former mayor, who's also a Goshen College graduate. Here's an overview of the presentation. We'll have a panel discussion. Alan will speak. There'll be time for some questions, and then I'll offer some advice for those who have an interest in being involved. 
Some of you probably are skeptical coming into this session about the value of getting involved in politics. You might even agree with the view expressed in this comic strip. Calvin and Hobbes, this was something that was popular years ago. And in this, of course, Calvin is expressing the sentiment that it's better not to get involved than to let other people fix problems that we have. And I really get that. Uh, at no time in my life has a regard for elected officials and policy development been so low. What's happening in Washington these days um, can only be described as a train wreck. And many people, understandably, have turned away and turned off. Many local communities have also taken a beating. The lower right-hand photo shows the Concord Mall, which is many, probably the way you've experienced it when you've gone, if you've gone to the Concord Mall. But that used to be a very vibrant place to be. Um, maybe our communities have declined because of institutions that once united us have faded. Maybe it's because of economic factors like the increase in online shopping, or maybe it's because our electronic devices give us a way to connect with the world, but don't do much to help us connect with each other in our local communities. Still, politics can affect your life and is affecting your life in ways that you may not even imagine. And you can shape your future and make this a better world by getting involved. It'll take an advancement in your time and effort. But as I think you'll hear today, it is worth it. Not only can community involvement create a better world, it's also directly related to your education at Goshen College. You can see the sentiment of being involved reflected in our mission statement and in the words I've highlighted, which focus on those aspects, as well as our vision statement, which includes our wish that you will seek inclusive community and transformative justice in your time here and beyond. Our course also has strong parallels to these topics in the course goals, of exploring social issues toward an understanding of how to build and nurture communities, preparedness for cross-cultural experiences, and how analysis of how identity is shaped and developed. And of course, they're also related to the student learning outcomes for this course in the areas of knowledge, skills, and responsibilities. And finally, politics are also engaged in our study this week of race and civic engagement. As you know, our curriculum has gone beyond exploring interpersonal relationships and also addressing systemic issues. And there are systemic issues that I will mention before our panel. So that's why it's important to learn about politics and community, partly because of what we are as a college and what we hope you'll learn. But I also hope it's important to you because of the country we are in and the country we want to become. Like many of you, I grew up being taught that this was the greatest country in the world. And I believe it can be if we work to make it happen. The more people drop out and let others decide, the longer it'll take. That's why we need to exercise our right to vote, giving consent to the governed, giving consent to be governed and empowering our public servants to advance the common good. Those beliefs have been deeply embedded in our history and in our mythology as country as Americans. We really want to believe that every vote counts and that every voice matters. 
Unfortunately, the reality is more complicated and darker. For as long as there's been voting in the United States, there have been people excluded. Anyone who wasn't a white landowner, African Americans, Native Americans, women, immigrants, people with little education or who were poor, and many more. Although voter suppression has a long history, I just want to mention two before our panel begins. The first is voter suppression against African Americans. After the Civil War, African Americans won the right through the passage of the 15th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. And at that time, many people tried to include women. Unfortunately, Congress decided against that. And women didn't win the right to vote until 1920. Imagine that, just 100 years ago. So after the United States became a country for the first 144 years, women could not vote. It seems hard to believe that. African Americans won the right to vote in 1870, and things gradually began to change. A large number of African Americans were elected throughout the country, and they elected people who started to make life a little better for them. And then came the backlash from the Democratic Party. They imposed laws to prevent African Americans from voting. Poll taxes, literacy tests, laws that made it harder to register unless your grandfather had voted, disqualifications for only minor crimes, gerrymandering, intimidation and violence, including murder. Despite protests, these restrictions shut down African American voting and they remained in place until the passage of the Voting Rights Act in 1965. Of course, many of those restrictions remain in different forms, but just as effective. Purges of registered voters, voter identification laws, reductions in polling places, shorter early voting days, and challenges to the balance of African-American voters. So which group, might you ask, is the current target of voter suppression? Well, it's you, and sadly by the Republican Party. Now it's important to acknowledge that there have been times when Democrats treated young people with scorn and would have preferred they not vote. But Republicans are leading the charge today because many more young people are voting. And the majority of those young voters disagree with Republicans on key issues and have shown an annoying tendency to them to vote for Democrats. And young people are voting in greater numbers. For example, the student voting turnout for the 2018 midterm election was more than double the rate uh, than it was for, um, excuse me, uh, for 2014. And are energized by issues like opposition to President Trump's policies and climate change. Uh, people voted uh, in great numbers. And Goshen College exceeded that rate. 42% of Goshen College students voted last year compared to just 15% in 2014. And our student voter registration rate increased from 72% to 80%. Even larger numbers of young people are expected to vote in next year's presidential elections. And I believe Goshen College students will be part of that search. More than 50 of you took voter registration forms from me during new student orientation. 38 of you signed up to get updates about climate change. And 38 signed up to support immigrants. And last month, here on campus, we completed a successful voter registration drive on campus. We also expect a large number of you to vote in next Tuesday's municipal election.
So Republicans have imposed some old tricks to drive down the student vote. Some states are requiring college students to get driver's licenses in the state where they're now attending school and register their vehicles in, this, in that same state. And in some states, that costs hundreds of dollars. Some states are excluding or making it harder to use student IDs for voting. For example, the state of Indiana allows students who attend public colleges with student IDs to vote, but does not allow you to use a private college student ID to vote. Some have banned early voting, and others have reduced or eliminated campus polling places. In short, there are people who don't want you to vote. And, and sadly, I think this is our view. They don't care what you think. They would rather ignore what you're doing. They're not interested in hearing from you. They're working actively to keep you from voting. In other words, you don't matter to them, and they hope you haven't noticed. But today we have some students who will come up. They can come up now. Who will give you their experiences and why they believe it's important to be involved. Adriana, I'd like to start by asking you what issue you're passionate about and why. Um, one of the issues that I am extremely passionate about is immigration. And I am going to say why, because for a large majority of my life, um, 12 years, I have been undocumented who was unable to even get DACA just because of three months difference. It was extremely difficult to know that I was completely deportable, that one day I could get home and I would know that maybe my mom or my grandmother wasn't gonna, weren't gonna be there. Um, it's difficult to know that every morning that my mom goes to work, she's taking a risk. It's difficult to know that we have no other options because she is the only person who works in our house, household. She is the only one I can depend on. And if anything happens to her, I will have to take her place and become responsible for my own family at such a young age when I'm definitely not prepared for it. How typical is your story among other, other Latino students in the same situation? I can tell you in this campus, I have met so many people who are experiencing something very, very similar. I know people who have DACA. I know people who do not have DACA. I know people who are citizens, but their parents aren't. I know that they, are, they have some of the very same fears that I do. And I know that some of them wish that they could do something about it. They wish that people would try to hear their stories and understand them and really, really hear them out and really understand what they are going through and their families are going through and why they came here, because that's the most important. And do you think there is, students can have an impact by being involved in this discussion? Yeah, I definitely think that there, we can make a great impact. You don't, I would say you don't even have to agree on immigration. Just listen to us. Really, really sit down and hear what we have to say. You, you can, many people do not understand immigrants and that's why they have this ignorance about immigrants. And I think that if you just sat down, you would see that we aren't 
that bad. You, I know the nicest people I have met are immigrants, and they're the people who have helped me out the most. I think whoever wants to get involved should. We can make a huge impact. We can get people to excuse me, acknowledge a lot of things. We can change a lot of things in this country if we just try to get involved, if we could vote. And even of, the, even of us who can't vote, just get out into our communities and do as much as we can for them because even we can make an impact. Thank you very much. Emily and Zach, earlier this year, you got involved in a major issue, uh, advocacy for hate crimes legislation. Indiana was only one of four states that didn't have a law imposing longer sentences for people who victimize others because of the race, ethnicity, gender, sexual orientation, or religion. Emily, can you explain why this issue was important to you? Okay, so for starters, I am bisexual, and the law involved protections for LGBT people. And being an LGBT person, that meant a lot to me. It meant a lot to people I cared about. And the law also kind of just meant something to me because I live in Indiana, and even if I wasn't bisexual, simply by living here, the law would affect me because there are people who belong to the groups that the hate crime protects who I interact with and I work with on a daily basis and who I care about and who I hope you guys who also live here in Indiana care about as well. Zach, why was the issue important to you? Um, so, sort of on the same line as Emily, I live in the state of Indiana and I think it's important that we protect all people because if we protect the most marginalized people, everyone in turn is protected and when you bring up the people who are the lowest and help the people who have the most issues, I believe that everyone else is better off for it. As you noticed, the beginning slide showed a group of students standing in front of a building, and that's the state capitol in Indianapolis. And those students went uh, to the state capitol. I, I took them there in February to testify in favor of hate crimes law before a Senate committee of the Seven students who testified that day, six of them were from Goshen College. Emily, can you try to recreate some of the key points you made and what did that feel like to do that? Um, one of the main points I made is that, um, as for myself, I'm not necessarily somebody who, like being gay, people don't always look at you and assume that's a gay person. I have to harass them. But oftentimes for people who are trans, it's much different. People often will look at somebody and assume they're trans, and it can be taken in a very violent, awful way. And being that there are people I know and I, and I care about who are trans, that's kind of the main thing that I spoke about. Zach, how about you? Um, yeah, so I come from Illinois, which has hate crimes law, and because I'm a black person in the U.S., and I know things have happened to black people like me and other people of other races and people who identify other ways, such as being trans or gay and or a number of reasons, political reasons as well, it's just important, I think, that if something happens to you, there's a way for you to get the justice you deserve whether it, even if, yeah, just. 
how did, after a word, there was a legislator who came up to you and talked to you. What, what was that like? I mean, for Zach. Um, yeah, so there was, it was a really, um, it was a really almost humbling experience, to be honest, because the state legislator came up to us and was talking about how it was important that he sees young people like us um, go and speak on issues we care about. And he was like, he wishes that he had these opportunities when he was our age. And I think we need to take advantage of every opportunity because no matter what you believe in, I think it's important to make your voice heard because if the only way for us to grow is if we understand where we are as people and where we want, need to be and then be able to bridge gaps because this country works better when people work together, not divide themselves. Now, as this process played out over the next few weeks, I know that you were closely following that and the legislature ended up passing a hate crimes bill but they did not include protections based on a person's age, gender, or gender identity. Zach, did the outcome surprise you? Yes and no. Um, so when we, it passed the, so we went to the city, the Senate committee hearing and it passed uh, pretty easily and then it passed to the state uh, Senate pretty easily and then it got to the house and it was, there's a, it was gutted for lack of a better term, and a lot of the like stated protections were um, taken away, and so it's harder, I think now, like it's kind of lost its teeth because it no longer has, it no longer states what can, like what they want protected, and so it's now just a general bill that kind of encompasses everyone, but doesn't really I, like define what it is or is not considered a hate crime. Emily, based on that outcome, um, if there's another attempt next year to put that back in the bill, protection for gender identity, um, do you think you would be involved again? Oh yeah, of course. It's um, something that should be, that is important and that living in Indiana, as I said, is something that would be really important to get involved with, for anybody to get involved with. Adriana, would it be helpful uh, to you if more students were involved uh, in advocating for immigrants? And if so, what are some of the things they could do to support immigrants? Um, yes, I would say that it's, it would be very helpful that there are people that advocate for immigrants. Why? Because a lot of immigrants have fear of their own communities because they don't know how many people actually support them. Just a lot of, I know that my mom doesn't like to go out into the community in, in a lot of things because she's like, I don't, I don't know what to expect from the community. It's, it's scary not to know how many people support you or how many people don't. So it, it's great to know that there are people supporting you that are supporting immigrants and are supporting your cause. One way that I would say that you can help is go out into your communities every chance you get go out and talk about immigration, learn about immigration, learn about immigrants, and that is one of the greatest things that you could do. Another thing I would say, which we've talked about before, is vote. Get, become knowledgeable about the issues that are, that are in, in your states, in your country, in your communities. That is one way that you can help us all. Thank you. I'd like to now invite former Goshen Mayor Alan Kaufman 
to come up to the stage and to share with you. Uh, Alan, is a, as I mentioned, is a Goshen College graduate. He used to like to tell students about the time he spent in the Dean's Office for Disciplinary Issues, uh, but he then went on to become the longest serving mayor for the city of Goshen and has continued to be a true friend to Goshen College and to our students. Thank you, Richard. You wouldn't have, to, you wouldn't have had to say the part about the dean's office, but thank you anyway. Um, I bring you greetings from Mayor Stutzman. He would have liked to have been here today, but he had two conflicts that he just couldn't change to be here, so uh, you end up getting me. Um, I would like to know a little bit about the audience that I'm talking to. So how many of you live in the city of Goshen? Every hand should be in the air because unless you live outside the city limits right now, you live in the city of Goshen. And when I used to be the one who would welcome new students to Goshen College when they first showed up, I always said that you're not only a resident of Goshen College, but you're a resident of the community and we want you to care for it the same way you care for your campus and be fully engaged with us, enjoy the parks, enjoy the downtown, um, enjoy everything about Goshen because you are a part of it. Um, and also, the fact that a lot of you came to Goshen College not expecting to be here more than four years and you would move on to somewhere else, but a lot of people in Goshen are Goshen College graduates, whether they're doctors or teachers or lawyers or accountants or uh, business people or whatever in Goshen, there is a tremendous influence on this community from Goshen College graduates, and you are going to be some of those people. Um, when I came to Goshen College, I graduated in 1971 um, with the intent of, I was a biology chemistry major, the, the intent was I was going to go to dental school, um, but I decided I didn't want to do that, and I stayed in the office products industry for a number of years where I had worked during college and, and in high school, where I was comfortable. Did that for 25 years, and then became the mayor of Goshen, and was there for about 19 years. The great thing about Goshen College is that it prepares you for the changes in life. Um, a lot of you are going to end up in different careers than you think you're going to be in, and Goshen College, as a liberal arts college, prepares you for those changes. Um, so another thing I would like to ask is, how many of you have parents that are under the age of 44? Okay. Your parents were not alive when I started in politics. Okay. <laughs> Uh, my first introduction to politics was, well, my first um, elections were at Goshen College as junior class treasurer and senior class president, um, and then got involved in local politics in 1975 when I ran for the city council and served some years there, about 16 years on the city council, um, actually 20 years on the city council, and then became mayor. Um, but when I wanna talk, what I want to talk about is your involvement um, in local government local politics, and to do that, I'd like to tell you a little bit about the history of Goshen so you know a little bit about the community that you're part of right now. Um, when I was um, in my growing up years in the 1950s and 1960s, we were pretty much an all-white community. Um, I don't remember any African-Americans in Goshen. There were a lot of them in Elkhart, a lot of them in South Bend. I remember one Latino in my high school, and we didn't think of him as any different because he'd been with us for a long time. I didn't think about Goshen being, why Goshen was different, um, but Goshen was a sundown community, and if you don't know what that is, it's a place where African Americans were not welcome in the community and needed to leave before six o'clock in the evening. 
I didn't know that when I was growing up. When I was a little kid, I was in a minstrel show. And if you don't know what a minstrel show is, it's where white people are making fun of black people. Um, I played my accordion at the age of six. I was not black-faced. All the adults in the minstrel show were black-faced. I had no idea what a minstrel show was. Um, but we had that culture where we did not welcome people from the outside. It's a very, very closed community. Um, and through the years, um, that changed quite a bit. Um, in the 70s and 80s, the Latino community was growing pretty quickly. Um, and it was hard for the community to assimilate that coming out of the past that it came out of. And so the mayor before me recognized the growing um, prejudices in the community and formed what was then called the Human Relations Commission to try to overcome those prejudices. The Ku Klux Klan came to Goshen. The mayor created an alternative event for people to go to so they would pay attention to that. Uh, when I became mayor, the Ku Klux Klan came again because of the growing Latino community, not African Americans at the time. And the community passed a no mask ordinance. These are, these are starting to be things that uh, people your age would be concerned about as you grow up. We passed a no mask ordinance saying that people had a right to say what they wanted to say, but not anonymously. Uh, well, that was defeated um, on appeal by the Amer ACLU, and we spent $50,000 defending that ordinance, and we still lost, and we're told not to go on to another appeal because it would lose there too. We spent $50,000, but I think it was the right thing for the community to express its opinion about what was happening in Goshen. The next time the Ku Klux, they still came again. And, and when we passed that no mask ordinance, the Ku Klux Klan was in the council chambers in their robes and hoods at the time. We passed it anyway. They came again, and the next time they came, we said we're gonna, we're gonna start a pledge against prejudice, where for every minute that you're demonstrating in Goshen, we will collect pledges from people in the community to give to half of it to the Southern Poverty Law Center and half of it to the local Human Relations Commission. Well, they hate the Southern Poverty Law Center, so they didn't stay very long, um, and they haven't been back since then. So, um, I mentioned that we were a, a sundown community. Goshen is still the only city in the United States that has passed a council resolution acknowledging its past and not a, the community didn't apologize for it because people in the community say, we didn't do it. You know, it was people before us that did it. So that the resolution had to be carefully worded. They acknowledged our past, said it never should have happened, and it won't happen again, which is pretty close um, to an apology for it happening. Uh, so we have, we have grown through prejudice. We're not all the way out of it. You know, we, a few years ago, we had a group in Goshen called the Citizens for Immigration Law Enforcement who wanted to see us all white again. Um, and the initials are C-I-L-E, and we pronounced it silly, but it wasn't, it wasn't funny at the time. Uh, but they have disbanded. Uh, we still have one member, one commission member on the Community Relations Commission who wears his border control cap to the meetings. And sadly, I guess that's part of our diversity too. So why should you care about local government? Um, Local government is the closest government to the people. Okay, we provide the kinds of services that you depend on, police and fire, and we deliver clean water, and we take it away when you're done with the water, and we pick up sticks and leaves, and all that kind of stuff, all those kind of services in the community. But we are also the government that creates the kind of atmosphere in the community, the atmosphere that I just talked about. We have grown to, from a place of 
opposing diversity in Goshen to celebrating the diversity we have um, and acknowledging that this is, a, this is a vibrant community because of it. Um, what are some of the issues that you care about? Um, the uh, issue of civil rights was brought up. Goshen tried to amend its local civil rights ordinance two times while I was the mayor. Uh, the first time, pe transgender people came to me and said, can we do this? Can we insert four words into the ordinance for sexual prefer preference and gender identity? And I said, that's gonna be controversial because it's a religiously com conservative community, so it will help to have bipartisan support of the council. So our current mayor, Jeremy Stutzman, was on the council at the time. He was the Democrat sponsor, and there was a Republican sponsor. And we kept it quiet in the community until it had to be known when the council packets came out and the, and the meeting was coming up. And the council chambers holds 150 people, and it was out the door, out the door with people on the first reading. And it passed. I mean, there was impassioned discussion, but it passed four to three on first reading. And we had to go to a second meeting. And so we went to the high school auditorium, and the whole 650 seats were filled, largely by people from outside the community. And the discussion was ugly at that meeting, and it lasted till one o'clock in the morning, and the Republican flipped his vote, and it lost four to three. Um, and we tried once more, and it didn't go anywhere further than that. That's an issue that still is facing the city of Goshen. When we looked at the minutes of the meeting, the first meeting where it, where it failed, it showed that the majority of people who live in the city of Goshen were in favor of the change, and most of the people who came in from outside were opposed to the change. So that's one issue that, that we deal with locally. But there are others, and, I, and when, when I was mayor, uh, the PACS group at Goshen College um, invited the police chief and I to come in and talk about racial profiling, because that was a big topic, not in Goshen, but nationally it was, and they wanted Goshen the Goshen City Police to prove that they weren't racially profiling. And so for six months, we kept records and it showed that we were not. Um, the statistics showed that it reflected the community. Um, so we were, so Goshen College students were active in that issue. Um, you have been more recently active in uh, the climate change resolution that the Goshen City Council dealt with uh, and the City Department of, of Environmental Justice now Mayor Stutzman wants to work with other cities in Indiana to try to get driver's licenses for undocumented residents. That's gonna take a resolution of the city council and that may be controversial too. But we know, and the police chief knows, that undocumented people are going to drive. They're gonna to drive to work, they're gonna to drive to school, they're gonna to drive to the grocery store, and they're at risk of being arrested and deported. Um, if people are allowed to get a driver's license, they have to study the the manual and know the rules of the road and get insurance and they are less likely to run from the scene if they have an accident. There are all kinds of reasons to allow undocumented people to drive in this community and other states do that. So that's one of the things that the city council will be dealing with in the future that people like you are going to be concerned about. Now with the issue of voting locally, a lot of people say my vote doesn't matter. And in Elkhart County this is a really, really red county. And a lot of times there are not very many Democrat votes and the state of Indiana certainly is a really, really red state. And so presidential elections are usually decided by the time the primary comes to Goshen. So votes at that level don't matter as much. But at the local level, decisions are made, elections are, are determined by two votes, seven votes, eight votes. I lost an election one time by seven votes. 
Every vote counts for more in a local election because there are fewer of those votes. So how many of you are registered to vote anywhere? How many of you are registered in the city of Goshen? A number of you. You're all eligible to register in the city of Goshen. And if you're not, I would encourage you to look into that in the future uh, while you're living in Goshen and vote locally because your vote does matter. And Goshen City Council does deal with some of the kinds of issues that matter to you. So local politics is important and I encourage your participation and thank you again for inviting me to come talk. Thank you very much, Helen. Questions, we have some time for questions. I hope you've been intrigued by the discussion. We welcome pushback, we welcome challenges, we welcome any kind of question you might have. Who has one, who wants to start? You have to have some kind of a, an ID uh, from the state of Indiana or a passport. Now, you can also qualify to get a free identification card. All you have to do is go to the Bureau of Motor Vehicles and bring something like a passport, and they will give you for free uh, a ID card that'll allow you to vote. Uh, the issue of IDs, I haven't heard a good explanation, so that's an issue I'd like to bring to our local legislators with the help of some students and see if we can change that law, because there is no good reason why a student from IUSB can use their ID to vote, but a student from Notre Dame can't. I mean, it really doesn't make sense. And in a lot of state college IDs, it doesn't matter as long as it's from an official institution. Um, I can't speculate as to why that is the case, but that is an anomaly that it would be good for us to change. Yes. It's, it's a state ID, I mean, it's a state function to issue driver's licenses. Uh, but this isn't a crazy thing. The state of California allows this, as well as the state of New Mexico. And they did it for the reasons that Alan mentioned, because they have an interest in making sure that everyone who drives knows the rules of the road, can pass a basic test, and has insurance. I'm all for it. I just yeah. Can yeah. I add a comment? Sure. One of the other reasons that I think a driver's license makes sense is that the state of Illinois allows it, the state of Michigan is considering it, and if our bordering states allow driver's licenses, think how many of our Latinos are gonna to move to a place where they can live their lives more openly than they can in the, in the state of Indiana. Well, it's easy for you to change from Maryland from any other state to Indiana. It's easy to register here. Um, 
And, and we've told students that I understand when people from Pennsylvania or a marginal state, I mean a state that can be red or blue, wants to keep their vote there. That's very politically astute to do that. But it's not that hard to vote in a local election and then switch your registration back to Maryland. In the state of Indiana, you just have to live in your precinct for 30 days in order to register. Yes. No. Um, you have to have a state-issued ID. It can be, or a federal issued. It can be your passport. It can be a military ID, which I don't think there are very many of at Goshen College. Um, or it can, it can be an Indiana driver's license, or you can get an Indiana ID by going to the Bureau of Motor Vehicles, and, it, and if you say it's for voting purposes, they will give you an ID. It's not a driver's license, but it's an Indiana ID that allows you to vote. So you can't use, the only thing your out-of-state driver's license might be good for is a visual um, identification that you are that person, but you have to have either a federal or a state-issued ID. Uh, but they are easy to get, they're free, um, if it's for voting purposes, at the BMV. Do you, do you know what you need to take to get that? Do you have to show a DC ID, or what do you need to prove you live here? That's a good question, and I don't know, but... Uh, Richard, do you know? The passport would work. Well, the passport mm -hmm. would also... I've, I've heard that, like an invoice from the registrar's mm -hmm. office, something that shows what your address is here. It could be a utility bill if you lived off campus. It could be something from the college that, that is sent to your address. So if you have that, I think that works. Anybody else? Any closing thoughts well, from folks? I'll offer one thing that uh, kind of explains uh, how the city of Goshen was so closed for so long. Um, and many of I don't know if R.L. Polk directories are still published, but it's a book that used to be published about a community that showed, you could look up people by reverse phone numbers and it listed everybody lived in the community and where they worked and all this kind of information. But in the front of that book, there's a demographics page. And originally it was written by uh, chambers of commerce or business communities. And on that, if you look at a 1955 R.L. Polk directory, it says, this is almost an exact quote. One of the parts of the description of Goshen is, Goshen is a low crime community, largely due to the nature of its population, which is 97.5% native born white, 2.5% foreign born white, and there are no Negroes. Okay, think about that. We're low crime because we're all white. Now in 1956, the and there are no Negroes was removed, so somebody um, became a little bit more aware of the prejudices. But the same statement, without the and there are no Negroes, stayed in that directory for years until the late 1970s when, it's, when it said we were 97.5% native-born white, 2% foreign-born white, and 0.5% other. But it still said that we're low crime because we're virtually all the same. And then in the late 70s, that was removed. But that's the kind of prejudice that was in this community 
till past when I graduated from Goshen College. So in the last 30 years, a lot of stuff has changed since then. I'd like to conclude by uh, offering some suggestions if you want to get involved. I know it's difficult to get involved. I know how busy you are. Uh, but it's been my experience, and I think Alan would confirm this, that even a small number of citizens being engaged can change the mind of elected officials. After all, they know they have to run for re-election. And they know that if they don't do the right thing, it'll eventually catch up with them. So my advice would be, first, register and vote. The next thing would be to educate yourself about issues you care about. There are so many reliable news sources. The fact that you have these smart devices can allow you to get, at any time, reliable information. <clears throat> and one good way to do it would be to subscribe to any of the news aggregators that are out there. I subscribe to a couple of immigration-related uh, organizations, daily emails, and they will send me the top stories going on that day related to immigration. So. You can do that for climate change, you can do that for a lot of different issues, so it's, it's brought to you, brought to your email. Share with others what you're learning. Um, this is knowledge you should share and a perspective you should share. And find allies and work with them. There are many at Goshen College, and they would be happy to uh, you know, share that interest with you. Stand up for your cause. Um, I think one of the most effective things that can be done is to challenge misinformation that you see, either on Facebook or on Twitter, or on any other platform that you might have. Don't let hate go unanswered. Don't let ignorance continue to spread. Volunteer your time. There are lots of nonprofits in our area, in our state, that could use your energy, could use your ideas and creativity. Call, email your elected officials. They are responsive. They do know that if you, enough people come to them, they will have to consider changing their position. Attend local rallies or protest gatherings. Uh, I'm hoping to organize a gathering on November 12th. November 12th is when the US Supreme Court will hear a challenge to DACA. That's that program that allows folks who are brought here as children, um, they didn't have any choice in the matter, to have legal status that's temporary and there's a an attempt right now to undo that. So this would be a gathering to show solidarity for our dreamers and to express as a community that we support them and want them to stay. So I hope you'll consider that. Accept the invitation. There will be invitations coming next year if you're interested in going to testify to the state legislature on any kind of issue, whether it's climate change or immigration or economic development policy. These are things that will affect you, if not now, later, and you have a right to express yourself or walk or ride a bike to the city council. Donate what you can, even if it's just a little, because uh, that can help. Most importantly, don't give up. When you give up, you let others decide what's going to happen in your life. So I hope you'll consider this an invitation and an encouragement from folks who have been involved and are involved to exercise your right. So I think that's our time. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Richard and panelists. I want to let you know that if you are staying for convocation, and I hope you are, 
you still need to step outside so that you can come back in and have your ID checked. Thank you. Good morning, everyone. Welcome. Thanks. Good morning. Can you hear me okay? Okay. What a cool space for Convo. And thank you all for coming out to hear today's speaker, who is still rolling in. Um, so he'll be here momentarily. I heard from him just a little bit earlier. Um, if you might have noticed on the communicator advertisements for this, the name of our speaker and our guest is different, actually. So Marcus Winchester had been scheduled to come here. He's the director of the Department of Language and Culture for the Pokagon Band. The, the tribe had a death in the community this week, and so he's helping at the funeral today. So um, instead, we have one of the uh, members at large from the tribal council named Gary Morceau coming. So he should be here momentarily, and I'll happily hand over the floor to him. Um, but before he arrives and before we get started with his sharing, I just wanted to provide a little bit of background of why we're doing this. And um, for those of you, especially who are first year here at Goshen, I uh, have a few bits of information that you might find interesting about our place here in this part of Indiana. So you might have noticed earlier events in the fall, uh, say President Stoltzfus or others, speaking about how we are on Potawatomi land here and acknowledging the fact that the history of Elkhart County and of what is now Goshen College is complicated and has multiple layers. And increasingly, our society is becoming more vocal, maybe more aware of the history, uh, the Native American history that we have for several hundred years essentially brushed under the rug. So it's in that context that Goshen is trying to understand more of this. And we have a number of different people from our campus community who are, who are forming friendships with and trying to better understand uh, the Potawatomi in particular, who are the tribe that was is native to this place and is still here. It's another important point to, to make, that although we tend to think of Native American history as something that happened in the past, it, it is ongoing. And that's a big part of why I asked Marcus and now Gary to be with us today, just to share some of the things that the Pokagon Band, who is the uh, local branch of the Potawatomi tribe that, uh, in this area, um, what they've been doing recently. So that's, that's one piece of the context. The other piece is that this is now November, November 1st, that's actually Native American Heritage Month. So, and I'm sorry, I didn't even introduce myself to start things off. I'm Jonathan Schramm. I teach in the Sustainability and Environmental Education Department. So both here and also at Mary Lee. So good to, good to see you all here again. Thank you for coming this morning. Okay, just a couple of quick introductory pieces to try to set the stage a little bit here. Um, you might have seen, if you've studied American history at any point, a map like this, right, sort of showing how the territory that became what we now think of as the United States was acquired and expanded over um, a number of decades um, in the 17 and 1800s. And everything in this brown on the right side of the screen there is just called territory of the original 13 states on this map. But of course, that, that lump obscures a lot of important details. And so if we look at just say the state of Indiana, which by the way means the land of the Indians, we see that the territory we now call Indiana was acquired by the US government um, from Native American tribes through a series of different treaties. 
Um, a big one was a Treaty of St. Mary's in 1818 that uh, secured a huge chunk of central Indiana. But you can see that there's lots of different treaties and interactions with various Native American tribes that led to what we now see as Indiana. Um, looking, this map's a little bit chunky, but if you look even more specifically, of course, we're up here, right about on the edge of the Treaty of Chicago, Treaty of Mississinewa. If you're traveling between here and Mary Lee, you actually cross that boundary. But looking a little more specifically at what that looks like, here's a map from the late 1800s that was summarizing what had happened in this part of Indiana through these different land transactions. And um, the area that's now Goshen is in that 1828 cessation, cessation of land from the Potawatomi to uh, the U.S. government. And, um, and I also find it really interesting at this scale, you can see lots of little tiny plots. And some of these were villages and home sites that were granted to particular Native American tribes and particular Native American bands and particular families in many cases. So there's an interesting history going on at the fine scale that those really large maps kind of cause us to not see. Here's a bit of what the language of these treaties looks like. Um, so the top part in blue describes all that area that we just saw that Goshen was a part of. And um, the orange part on the bottom of this slide is describing the exact amount that that the government was paying the Potawatomi to, to control this land. And it's not a whole lot, right? It was an annuity for 20 years of a couple thousand dollars each year to the tribe, plus uh, some money to start homesteads, to buy farm equipment and things like that. Signed uh, by all of these people. So uh, these two columns would have been uh, Potawatomi, our Potawatomi names or Anglicizations of Potawatomi names. Um, and it's not by coincidence that there are so many names, right? Because in many ways, the tribal system of making decisions required much more buy-in than we usually, uh, than Western European culture was thinking about. Their signatories are that little list on the right um, because they only needed, you know, our representatives, a few representatives. Um, so that was 1828. And... It allowed uh, Potawatomi to remain in the land, but a large chunk of the land was, was moved under the control of the U.S. government and opened to settlement from uh, folks moving in from the eastern seaboard. And, uh, but within 10 years, there was continued pressure to, to have even the last bits of the land that the Potawatomi controlled. And so um, through a series of meetings, negotiations, essentially um, the Potawatomi were, the the last parts of the tribe were forcibly removed through what's now called the Trail of Death. And that started very close to Goshen in a town called Rochester, Indiana, just an hour southwest of us. And um, it's much less well known than the Trail of Tears that the Cherokee were pushed through in the southeastern states, but it had a lot of the same effects. High, high mortality, especially of children and elders as families were force marched across a number, you know, several hundred miles out to Kansas, which at that time was considered the, the Indian territory. So, in fact, there are now Potawatomi that live in Kansas, and there are others who live in Oklahoma, where they were later pushed on, later in the 1800s. So here's a, pic a picture of some of that march, that forced removal happening. Now, some were allowed to persist. Some of the Potawatomi were allowed to stay. This is what we now call the Pokagon Band. And so they were uh, related, a couple of large family groups, and they had converted to Catholicism and demonstrated that they, were, they wanted to stay and farm and had this sort of Christianized connections, so 
they were allowed to stay in southwestern Michigan at that time. And, but they weren't officially recognized as a tribe on any level, and that was the situation for almost, over 150 years. And then in 1994, um, that Pokagon Band officially received recognition as uh, a federally recognized tribe in Michigan and Indiana. And at this point, they're still the only tribe in the state of Indiana that has federal recognition, even though there are descendants of other tribes still living in Indiana. Um, but that federal recognition allowed the band to do all kinds of things. They developed um, infrastructure. One, some of the more obvious pieces that you might have noticed of that are Four Winds Casinos in southwestern Michigan. There's a few of them. There's now one in South Bend. We'll talk a little bit about that with Gary. Um, and so that, but that income from the casinos actually allowed the band to do all kinds of important things, including offering housing for elders, uh, to create schooling and educational systems that could help revive culture and Potawatomi language. And it's really had a dramatic effect on changing um, what sort of the fate of the band. And it's one of the things that I find really most interesting about this. So one last map here. Is this would be um, an early plat map of what's now Goshen. And you can see the twists and bends of the Elkhart River going up through here, an area that, we, that was called at that time the Elkhart Prairie. And then there's a dotted line kind of moving up through that Elkhart Prairie that's just labeled Indian Trail. And that goes right between campus and Greencroft. So that's, this, this place was on the edge of this Elkhart Prairie, very fertile soils and highly valued by settlers for, for farmland. So that's where we are today. So just a couple of pictures of um, new developments that I'm hoping Gary can help explain for us a little bit more. Um, in 2016, so 22 years after the federal recognition of the Pokagon Band, um, there was an agreement signed between South Bend and the Pokagon Band that, and it was a purchase of, by the Pokagon of 165 acres on the southwest side of South Bend. So if you're going to the South Bend Airport, for instance, on US 20 bypass, you'll go right past this area. And um, considering that the Pokagon had lived on, the Potawatomi had lived on 5 million acres, getting 166 back is not a whole lot, but it is extremely important as a first step and as a symbol of the Pokagon, again, controlling land and having sovereignty over land that was, was long theirs here in the state of Indiana. So it's the first land owned by a tribe in Indiana at this point since the 1800s periods of, of carving up the state. Um, so you can see pictures of the casino under development, but again, and the, the casino is really kind of a gateway to funds coming in to the, to the band. And so other things that that's going towards are housing for senior citizens, for families. So on this 166 acres, there's a, quite a lot of development that's currently happening. So did Gary make it in? Dwayne is still out there. Okay. Let me step out for a minute. Sorry for this delay. Uh, I'll see if I can raise him on the phone. Um, the professor in me wants to give you a question to talk about with your neighbor while I'm gone. <laughs> but maybe let's just keep it open. You can chat gently with your neighbor, or you can talk a little bit more about what you know about Native American history here or in the place that you come from, or indigenous history if you're from somewhere outside of North America. I'll be back shortly. Thank you. Okay, 
Well, I just talked to them. He's not going to be here this morning. So you, if you needed this time for convo credit, don't worry. You've got that in full. Um, I would welcome further conversation about this if you'd like. We've got a little reception ready in Yoast uh, right next door. I think the food will be there. If it's not quite ready, we can hang out a little bit longer. Um, but otherwise, you have a little bit of extra time. Unless, actually, well, I've got you here. This is, again, the professor is coming back. Anybody have thoughts that you shared at, around you while I was gone there that you wanted to bring up or other things related to Potawatomi history and presence here that you were curious about? This will also give a little time for the snacks to fully arrive next door. Hi, hi I'm Dave Ostgren. I work down at Mary Lee and I, uh, my colleague here, I won't make her speak. Uh, was just talking about she grew up near here, Elkhart, and wished more information had been taught just in the schools to talk about the people who not only lived here, but live here. So 28, 30,000 people in, the, in this immediate area are, um, their background is uh, Potawatomi and Miami, and so it's bad form to kind of think in the past all in the past, it's still very much in the present. And of course the Dowagiac, um, the Pokagon Band is most eminent there. Thanks Dave. Yeah, other thoughts? Um, my name is Sarah Turner and I went on the Trail of Death pilgrimage with um, the Mennonite Seminary in Elkhart um, just this past June um, and so I, I could say a lot about that, but um, I was definitely moved to, to be here and to always learn more about the people who are still present, that there's so much of in our history, um, the way that it's told to us frequently in schools is that all the Native Americans left, they're not here, they're just in other places, but um, it's just so important, as you were mentioning, that this is like living, breathing, present history with us, so that we are, I guess you could say, choosing not to see like what's right in front of us. So yeah. Thanks, Sarah. Yeah. Oh, okay, great. Any other comments? Oh, you would have to be in the very top row. Less of a comment and more of a question if anyone has any insight on um, this, but I don't know what gave rise to the um, development of Native American casinos in the area. Was it just a way to earn income or, I don't know, I just think it's interesting. So, if anyone has an answer. Has anyone looked into that question more specifically? You have heard Marcus talk about that in the past. Do you want to share, Todd? Uh, I, I heard Marcus Winchester speak uh, at a presentation with the Rotary in Elkhart, and uh, it was really interesting to see that crowd, which is a lot different from this crowd, and what they were talking about, and they all had questions about the casinos. And it is uh, a way of earning, and it's uh, this loophole in um, legislation that allows it. And so they have, uh, that is paying for taking care of their elderly, uh, taking care of, all of it goes back into the, into the, the group uh, to take care of each other. And it was, I really hope that we find a way to get Marcus back here because 
it was a fascinating conversation, and he acknowledged our relationship with Mary Lee and with the folks at Goshen College. Thanks, Todd. It's helpful. I'm Eileen Zayner, another member of the community just came because I saw this announced. But I wanted to mention, as I've been exploring this topic recently, that the um, Pokagon Band in Dwajak invites the general public to come to their powwows on the weekends of Memorial Day and Labor Day. And they advertise on NPR. Um, it's a, a very welcoming environment. And if you're interested in knowing more about how the uh, Potawatomi people are living today, um, this is a great way to get in touch. It's an hour drive up to Dwajak and very worthwhile. Thank you. So quick clarifier then on the, the loophole, uh, why Native American nations can buy land and then uh, operate casinos without, um, is that they are sovereign nations. So federal tribal recognition, that 1994 act, that is a, that they are a sovereign nation of equal, at least equal, if not more equal status than states with the federal government. So that's why they can, on their land, they can decide to have casinos or govern, or independent, completely independent. So if you're Native American in, an, in a nation, and you work in the nation, live in the nation, you don't pay state taxes because you are not in the state, right? You are, but you are a part of the federal, uh, under the federal uh, uh, guidelines. So some things you can't, uh, the nations can't do, uh, but if the EPA sets out regulations to the states and the tribes, and that is a very important thing to think about in as far as sovereignty and that ability to, that's why it's so important for them to get that recognition, federal recognition. Thanks. Doug Kaufman, I'm, I'm also a colleague at Mary Lee, although I'm also a pastor at Benton Mennonite Church, and just to say a little something about from, from the past is that one of the places where there was a Potawatomi presence right before the removal would be between Benton and Goshen along the Elkhart River where Chief Five Metals had a village. And it would be, we don't know exactly where it is, but it's, it's around uh, Bainertown there's, is where there's a, 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 a stone that says something about that. So that's in Elkhart County, one of the places that we know there was a presence. Thanks, Doug. Uh, my friend Mandita and I went to one of those powwows uh, a couple years ago, and we had a really good time. There were presentations. Um, that one, they were talking about uh, food and food sovereignty. There were some presenters from other nations across uh, the country who had come, and there was delicious food, and we learned a lot. And yeah, it was, yeah, I just want to echo what, what you were saying. Um, a good opportunity and it's not too far away and there's lots of opportunities for carpooling so yeah thanks Gabe would anyone else like to share anything before we break up the session okay good well thank you again all for coming very sorry that it wasn't the session that you expected to have 
But again, if you'd like to hang out a little bit or just refill your coffee or tea cups on the way, right over here in Yost. Thank you.